Great job, praise team, in leading our singing this morning. Thank you, church, great singing. Please turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel and chapter 7, if you will. 2 Timothy 3.16 declares that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And this is the word of God, and we believe every word of that verse. But that is not to say that all scripture is equally applicable or equally awe-inspiring or equally transformative in that way. It's, it's for that very reason, friends, that when someone is a new believer, someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, we don't instruct them to start reading the Bible in the book of Leviticus, right? Or that's the very reason why we don't spend all of our devotional time in the first nine chapters of First Chronicles, right? No, we understand this is God's word and it's inspired and it's, it's breathed out by God and it's important, but there are certain passages that stand out as even more important to us or more applicable, maybe we should say. If asked to pick key passages of scripture in your own life, what would you choose? Just think about some of them in your own mind now. And why would you choose them? Why do they stand out as important to you? Some of us in this room would clearly identify the birth of Jesus Christ, or the crucifixion of Jesus, or the resurrection of Jesus. Some might look to the book of Acts and point to Acts chapter 2 and, and the day of Pentecost when the Spirit comes down and indwells the believers and the church is born there. Or in the Old Testament, some of you would choose the book of Genesis, the creation account, the fall of Adam and Eve. Maybe you would look to the call of Abram. Did you know that the first reference to the gospel is found in Genesis chapter 3? The very first reference to the gospel, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, as God is laying out the consequences for sin, he speaks to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Scholars have termed this uh, the proto-euangelion, right? It is the first reference or promise of redemption in scripture that ultimately takes place at the cross where the serpent's head is crushed through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Uh, and in Genesis chapter 12, some of you would look there and you would remember that first call of Abram, how Abram, this godless man, is called by God, by God's grace to go and to follow him and to believe him. And the first four verses of Genesis in chapter 12 now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be Blessed. So we have these early promises in Scripture. Right? We have this early promise of redemption through the seed of the woman. And then we have this call of Abram and this promise to make a great nation, to great, make a great people out of him, to give him a great name, and to bless others through him. We have all of that. 
And then we have fulfillment of that in the Gospels, right? In the person of Jesus Christ. But here's the question. How do we know that Jesus is the fulfillment? How do we specifically know that Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises that were made even thousands of years previous to this? And the answer, friends, is found in the text that we look at today. In 2 Samuel in chapter 7, also known as the Davidic Covenant. This is the link that sheds light on what the angel Gabriel said to Mary as she is now pregnant with the baby, with Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember what, Mary, what Gabriel said to Mary, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 30? And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Just notice the words that the angel uses to describe Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So promise and fulfillment. And what we'll see today is that 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Davidic covenant is the link that we see connecting them. We're going to see God's multifaceted grace in Jesus the fulfillment of God's promise. And we're going to end this morning by looking at what our response to God and to his great grace ought to be. Would you stand with me as we read the first 17 verses of 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares you to you that the Lord will make you a house. 
Now, when your days are fulfilled and you lie, lie, lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline with the rods of men, the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. And as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before, from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Will you pray with me? Lord, we're so grateful because we are recipients of the grace that you have promised to David, the grace that is found in Jesus. And today, Lord, we are praying that we would live lives that are worthy of the calling with which we have been called. May we live devoted lives for your glory. And may we live lives that show forth your love and your mercy and your grace. And may you do a great work in us individually and through us as a church so that your reputation and your glory excels in this land, in this city, and in our relationships. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, last week we saw that David was making Jerusalem now the capital of Israel. This is where the kingdom was going to be, was going to be right? The, the city of David. And David brings in the ark with much fanfare. There's not without incident, but there it is. The ark is there. And the people are rejoicing and they're giving thanks to God because the ark represented the presence of God. It represented the power of God. It represented the glory of God. Now, we need to understand that some of the events here in First and Second Samuel, and specifically even what we see here and have read here today, don't necessarily happen chronologically, or they're not recorded for us in a chronological fashion. Some of these events are more thematically organized, right? So we have David capturing Jerusalem. Well, what's the next thing to do? The next thing to do is to bring the ark. And then what's the next thing to do? Well, David wanted to build a temple. However, we should understand that this probably actually happened later in his reign, later in his rule. I mean, the text tells us here that God had given him rest from the enemies, but we know that even in the next chapter, there's still going to be war. And we also understand that there's going to be chaos in his own family, which we'll get to in a few chapters from now. So we should just understand that this took place a little bit later in David's reign, but it's recorded for us here now because it just makes sense Thematically, this is how the editor put it all together. The other thing that we should look at or just understand before we dive deeper into the text is that this is the first reference to the prophet Nathan that we have seen. Now, Nathan is going to play an important role in David's life. God is going to use Nathan in some very specific ways to uh, show David his sin. We'll see that in a few weeks. And he's an important player, even if his words here are very quickly overturned. Now, the first thing that we see from this text is that we are to trust God's gracious redirection. 
We are to trust God's gracious redirection. Okay? So as we look to the great grace of God, as we look to this, this, this powerful Savior, this, this glorious God who is over all, and we're trusting and we're looking to his gracious covenant, the first thing we see is that we are to trust God's gracious redirection. David desires to build God a house. What he means here is a temple. He wants to build a temple where the worship of God would take place. He understands the discrepancy, right? Like David's living in a wonderful house. We read about this a few chapters ago, how all these nations came and they, they built this temple, right? They built this house, excuse me, this palace. And David's living in it. It's a house of cedar. It's an exceptional house. It's where he's living. And God's house is a tent. In other words, the ark of God is kept in a tent. David understands the, disc- the discrepancy. Some believe that David is either trying to pay, <coughs> pay God back for everything he's done, and for all the help that he's received over the years, David's trying to, to pay God back, or even others believe that David thinks that he's reached this height of power that he can actually be a benefit to God. Think about that in terms of adult children who make it big, right? You think about sports stars. They sign a big contract, and what's one of the first things they do often? Well, they buy their mom a car, or they buy their parents a house, or whatever it is, right? Like, I'm paying you back for all these wonderful things that you've done for me for so long. This is the least I can do. And friends, in ancient times, there are various accounts of kings building temples and edifices to their gods in order to try to secure their favor. So this was a thing. But I don't believe that's what David was doing. I don't believe that's what he was doing. I don't think he was trying to secure God's favor. I don't think he was just trying to pay God back. In fact, how foolish would that be? We can't pay God back. For all his blessing and all his benefit in our life, we could never pay God back. So why did David want to build this temple? And my best guess is that David was familiar with the Lord's instructions given to us in Deuteronomy 12. In Deuteronomy 12, the Lord forbids his people to worship like the pagan peoples. But he sanctions, verse 5, Deuteronomy 12, seeking the place that the Lord would choose to put his name and his habitation a place where his people would bring their offerings and their sacrifices to worship. And verse 10, but that day wouldn't come until the Lord had given them rest from their enemies. So I think David's putting two and two together. I think David's thinking there's rest and here we are, it's time. It's time to build the temple. On the surface, friends, David's plan is reasonable. And the timing seems right. So Nathan then, the prophet, very quickly gives him the green light. He very quickly says, go ahead and do everything that your heart longs to do. However, that very night, the Lord appears to Nathan and he puts the brakes on the whole operation. David had a thought, but the Lord had a plan. David wanted to build an earthly temple, but God was going to build an eternal kingdom. Friends, it is never wrong to plan and to prepare. It's never wrong for any of us in this room to plan 
and to prepare. In fact, Scripture affirms such thing as being the wise thing to do. However, it is always right to hold our plans loosely and to seek the Lord continually. It's always right to hold our plans loosely and to seek the Lord continually. How many times in life have I had in mind to do something, but for whatever reason, it didn't work out the way I thought it would work out? It wasn't our plan to move to Amarillo 16 years ago, but God's redirections are perfect. It wasn't my plan to get cancer, but I can promise, and I can promise you that, but we're just called to trust him and trust his redirections in our lives. I was talking to a friend the other week. We were at a kind of an end, end of the summer thing for uh, Jackson and some of his friends. And there were some families together, and one of Jackson's friends' dads was telling me about this experience he had had early in the summer. Their whole family was planning to go on a mission trip, and uh, they, they fly to Houston. They get to Houston, and the plane they were supposed to get on, there was something wrong with the plane. They stayed there. They tried every possible way to get to where they were going to their ultimate destination for the mission trip and it just couldn't work out and ultimately they had to turn around and come back to Amarillo and I said man how how disappointing that was oh yeah it was very disappointing we were there we'd been before we were ready to go but in a moment like that what do you do except trust God's gracious redirection there was nothing they could have done. They were, they were on the way. They could not get there in the time they needed to get there to do what they were hoping to be able to do and accomplish while they were there. They exhausted every option. And they would tell you, even that night he told me this, they still don't understand why they were not able to get to where they wanted to be. And they may never know, but they just have to trust in God's providence. They just have to trust that God knows what he is doing and that he was redirecting their plans for whatever purpose he had. Sometimes, friends, even the plans that we think are good don't work out and we need to trust in God's gracious redirection. God's redirection may involve things like marriage or children or our jobs or our schooling could be anything. The key is that we are constantly seeking the Lord in prayer and obeying his word. We're constantly looking to him. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 seem so applicable. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. We sang this earlier, didn't we? He leadeth me. We're going to trust our sovereign God because he leads us and we know he is good so we will follow where he leads even when things don't make sense to us even when we may not even like the plan we can trust that God is good and he has our best in mind and that he is gracious so we follow but secondly we behold God's gracious condescension in this passage we behold God's gracious condescension in this passage. In verses six and seven, God makes a few things clear. If he wanted a temple, he could have had a temple. Number one, he could have created it himself, right? He could have said, let there be a temple, and voila, there would have been a temple. Or he could have instructed any of the people that he had put in charge of his people to build him a temple. But he didn't. 
Instead, he moved about them with a, in a tent, in a tabernacle. Do you see the condescension? The God of the universe, the eternal God, makes his dwelling place amongst his people. And friends, it's not like he gains value because he's hanging out with us. Like, we are so good at name dropping, right? We're good at name dropping because we think it can add value to our lives if we can just say, oh, I know this person. Like, I'm just gonna name drop, okay? I used to go to UCLA home football games and you ever heard of a guy named Trey Aikman? Like, I played catch with Trey Aikman one time and that was great. And I think I even told people that maybe secured me a few votes when I came here 16 years ago, okay? (laughs) But in the grand scheme, it doesn't mean anything, right? It means nothing. God gets nothing from us. Like it doesn't increase his value or increase his motivation or increase his self-esteem. But he humbles himself and he lives with us. He dwells with us. In us. This is our God. This is our God, and we see it here. We behold his gracious condescension. And friends, this points us to Jesus, the son of David who took on flesh, the eternal son of God who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but became a servant and died for us. Philippians chapter two. The eternal God dwelt with his people in a tent unashamed. And Jesus, the eternal God who took on flesh, redeems us and is not ashamed to call us brothers. That's what Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 says. He identifies with us. Jesus, the one who condescended, his grace evidenced in that While he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now friends, as you behold God's gracious condescension, let's remember that he lives within us if we are in Christ. And he promises never to leave us nor forsake us. And he invites us to his throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our times of need. And by the way, his grace is sufficient for our every need. Don't forget that, friends. The God of the universe, by his grace, is near to us. All because he wants to be near to us, not because we're deserving of his nearness. What comfort, what hope, what joy, what peace that gives to us as we encounter trials and difficulties and struggles. Look, my battle with cancer is not over and I know that God doesn't owe me anything, but his presence in this journey has made all the difference. All the difference. And I know that in your trials, you could say the same thing. And I know that you, like me, 
will give thanks to God and, and praise him for his nearness over and over again and comforted yourself with the fact that he is near, that he is close. This is our God. We're to call, recall his gracious condescension, his, the fact that he comes near to us. If not for God's grace and his nearness, then our roads would look a lot different. And they would feel a lot different. A song that I've sung as a prayer through this battle is a song by City of Light. It's called, I Will Trust My Savior Jesus. I won't sing it, but I will read it. I will trust my Savior Jesus when my darkest doubts befall. Trust him when to simply trust him seems the hardest thing of all. I will trust my Savior Jesus, trust him when my strength is small, for I know the shield of Jesus is the safest place of all. Jesus, only Jesus, help me trust you more and more. Jesus, only Jesus, may my heart be ever yours. I will trust my Savior Jesus, he has said his way is best, and I know the path he's chosen leads to everlasting rest. Jesus, only Jesus, Help me trust you more and more. Jesus, only Jesus, may my heart be ever yours. Praise the God who comes near to you, to his people. The God who comes near, even though his people didn't deserve it and didn't even want it, but desperately needed it. Next, recall God's gracious intervention Recall God's gracious intervention. Now, David, you're not going to build me a house, God says. I'm actually going to build you a house. But first, let me remind you of something. In verses 7 and 8, God reminds David of the grace that he has shown him. You were a shepherd boy, David. You were chasing sheep in the pasture. David, you were last in line in your own family. I called you to myself. I made you prince over my people. I exalted you above all others, David. And not only that, I've always been with you. David, I fought your battles for you. David, I defeated Goliath through you. Don't forget that, David. I have defeated your enemies. I protected you from King Saul. I cut off your enemies all around you. It's as if God is reminding David, you are where you are because of my grace, because of my presence in your life, because of my plan for your life. And not only is this true in David's life, friends, this is true in our lives as well. It's true in all of our lives if we are in Christ. God has graciously intervened in our lives. He has called us from darkness and called us into his everlasting light this i love how paul writes in titus chapter 3 for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures passing our days in malice and envy hated by others and hating one another like that's us but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us. 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we may become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is who we were. And this is who we are now. Because of our God who saves us. Because of our God who is near. Because of our God who has intervened in our lives. Don't miss the uniqueness of Christianity. Now there are people in this room today who are not in Christ, who are not following Christ, who would not claim to be a believer or a Christian. The uniqueness of Christianity is this. God serves us. He initiates and accomplishes relationship with us. Other religions tell us to do everything we can to to reach up to God through our good works and to try to get God's attention. Give what you can and maybe God will respond. Maybe God will hear. But the opposite is true in Christianity. The Bible teaches that we could never do anything We can never do enough. But God came to us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And he befriended us when we were his enemies. And what's true in the ultimate sense, friends, is true in everyday life as well. We owe everything to our God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, Paul asks this question, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Friends, the sin of pride is such an affront to God because it denies the reality about ourselves and it denies the reality about who God is and what God has done. Pride causes us to make so much of ourselves. And in making much of ourselves, we demean God and we belittle others. And this should make us a thankful people, recognizing that God has intervened in our life, recognizing that God has been gracious to us, recognizing that all we have is from God's good hand. All that we are is because of God's grace in our lives. Undeserving, yet God has lavished his grace upon us. The old song, Count Your Blessings, name them one by one, is so appropriate. But the fact is, we could never count all God's blessings, could we? We couldn't. We can't exhaust them. Fourth, lastly, Expect God's gracious continuation. Expect God's gracious continuation. So God begins by reminding David of what he has done for him, and then he transitions to tell David what he will do for him and what he will do for his people, how his grace will come through the ages. We see that there in the second half of verse 9 all the way through verse 17. In, in chapter 9, or excuse me, in verse 9, I will make a great name for you. I will give your people rest. I will make you a house. Now, it's true that some of these promises are fulfilled in the immediate years after David passes. Solomon does build God 
a temple. God does discipline many of the Davidic kings because of their rebellion against him, not to mention the people of Israel in general. However, the fullness of this covenant is fulfilled in the greatest of all Davidic kings in King Jesus. I will make you a great name. And of Jesus, his name shall be great. Luke chapter 1. In fact, Paul states that God has given Jesus the name above every name. Philippians 2. Verse 11. God grants rest. And we know that true rest is only in and through Jesus who has defeated the ultimate enemy, sin and death. In verse 13, God establishes a throne of his kingdom forever as Jesus is raised from the dead, never to die, but to live eternally. And he is exalted on high. Verse 14, God is father. He will be like, I will be like a father to you. You'll be like a son and Jesus is the father and, excuse me, God is the father and Jesus is the eternal son, the son of God, the son of man. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established Forever. Does that sound like what angel Gabriel said to Mary of the boy that she would give birth to? His kingdom is forever. So this is the Davidic covenant, right? A promise to King David, a promise fulfilled in and through the Son, in and through Jesus Christ, a promise of grace continually. A promise first given in the garden, a promise restated to Abraham and to his offspring, a promise fulfilled in Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God who died on the cross and rose again on the third day. A promise that we, who through faith partake in Jesus, all by God's gracious design, of God's gracious covenant, Dale Ralph Davis writes, death doesn't annul it, sin cannot destroy it, and time will not exhaust it. Now friends, we're not gonna take the time to read through and go through every verse of the, of the last part of verse seven, but let me just summarize. This is David's response to God's grace, okay? This is David's response to God's gracious covenant in his life. David in verse 18 responds with humility. Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, right? Look what you're going to do. Who am I? So David responds with humility. But second, David responds with worship. He recognizes God's greatness. In verse 20, he says, in verse 22, he says, you are great and there is none like you and there is no God besides you. Who am I? But this is who you are. There's no one like you. There's no one greater than you. There is no one, there is no God like you. Finally, belief. What we see here as that chapter ends is that David is calling on God to fulfill his promises. He's calling on God to fulfill his promises. David confesses that God's word is true. 
I don't deserve it, and you're great, but because you have promised this, do it, Lord. He believes. Humility, worship, belief. And friends, in light of who God is, and in light of what God has done for us in Christ, our response should be humility and worship and belief. Today, we can trust God because he has proven himself faithful. Will you today trust God? Will you believe him? Will you worship him? Will you humble yourself? Do you know Jesus? Do you know his forgiveness? Do you know the hope of eternal life? I'm going to pray here in just a minute. And after I pray, if you have questions about what it means to be in relationship with the eternal God or how you can have the hope of eternal life, come talk to us. We'd love to connect with you about those very things. Maybe there's some in this room who desire prayer. Or maybe there's some who want to join this church. God is at work, I'm sure of that. How is he at work in your life today and how will you respond to him let's pray together lord we thank you for your unfailing love as we read earlier as a church your steadfast love endures forever so thank you thank you for the promise you made to david thank you for the promise that you made to adam and eve in their sin Thank you for the promise that you made to Abraham. And thank you for the the promise you've made to us who are in Christ. That there is hope forever. There is life forever. There is joy forever. And there is peace forever. God, do your work in us. Do your work in us so that you would gain glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you stand and respond as God leads?